You know, Alex, tour managers are the unsung heroes of rock and roll. And you know this, everything is expected to go right, but it never does. So a tour manager's job is to fix things constantly every single day. It's not an easy gig, man. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and former lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and former lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. On December 6th, 2022, we posted one of our most popular episodes with Butch Vig, the man who not only produced some of the greatest albums ever, including Nirvana's Nevermind, but also plays drums for that great band, Garbage. But what was not Garbage was our conversation with Butch. In fact, he told us so many fantastic stories, we had to leave out some real beauties so the episode didn't become Taylor Swift's All Too Well, the 10-minute version. (laughs) Well, I think it's time to remedy that, especially considering that you saw Butch and Garbage this summer at the... And this rolls off the tongue every time I say it. (laughs) The RV InStyle Resorts Amphitheater in Richfield, Washington, which I assumed would be a place where you'd see air supply without any of the original band members. But (laughs) obviously, it's a much better venue than the name signifies. Yeah, there's a lot of great shows there. In fact, Neil Young just played there. Okay. But yeah, it was cool. First of all, Noel Gallagher from Oasis, his current band... High Flying Birds was playing as well. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was my first time seeing Butch and his bandmate, Duke Erickson, who plays guitar in Garbage. First time seeing them since 1990 in their band Firetown in Wisconsin. So that was pretty amazing. I literally walked up to the front row and it was very cool to see Garbage singer Shirley Manson worked the stage. I mean, talk about charisma. Nice. She just was all over the place. And she's both commanding and really funny. She made this great joke about Noel Gallagher being her (laughs) ex-husband. And the crowd was like, really? (laughs) I mean, there was palpable confusion that rippled through the audience. Like, is she joking or is this true? Do we somehow miss this? But it totally went over everybody's heads. And I saw the next day on Instagram, she actually had to comment (laughs) about the joke she made that nobody got. (laughs) You know, in the last time I saw Garbage, don't you? Tell us. I saw Garbage recording their first album in the studio because the following Willendas were recording our second album at Smart Studios in Madison. So we would go in the studio and we'd go hang out afterwards. And I would always be out in the lobby with Shirley and Shirley would be reading or writing something. And so... You know, they were very influenced by me and uh, everything I was doing in the lobby in between takes. I remember in another episode, you claimed to be an influence on Tom York from Radiohead. So, Well, there's actually some evidence of that, but I won't go into that. Anyways, (laughs) in honor of Garbage's summer tour, we resurrected some of those extra stories from our original interview with Butch, including a really important one about the recording Butch did 
with the Smashing Pumpkins that resulted in the album Siamese Dream. Yeah, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this short but extremely sweet Butch Vig sequel. You'll hear Butch mention Jimmy, that's Smashing Pumpkins drummer Jimmy Chamberlain, and Spooner, his seminal band from Madison, Wisconsin, that predated Garbage and Firetown. And from my Effie perspective, you'll enjoy these stories as much as any in our first episode with Butch, which you can find on CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. But first, a short break. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. You know, Butch, not only have you worked with Kurt Cobain, which must have been challenging, but you've also worked with Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins, who I'm sure can be a handful, too. How do you work with the big personalities and egos that you find in rock music? From my point of view as a producer, when you're working with someone who's very talented, psychologically and emotionally, they can be all over the place. And it's my job to sort of understand that and rein them in when necessary and also encourage them, push them. And I've realized after producing for all these years that half of what I do is psychological. You know, half of it is technical in terms of the arrangements, how the drums and guitars are sounding, what the vocals are like, what the performances are like. The other half is sort of negotiating what's going on in the artist's head, the band's head. Well, the last time you and I were actually in the same room together, Butch, was when you were with Billy mixing Siamese Dream at Rumbo Recorders in LA. I came by to interview to be their tour manager. And I remember kind of walking in the control room where you guys were mixing. And the first thing I hear him say is, oh, that just takes all the balls out of the song. <laughs> Something wasn't going quite right. I didn't get that gig. That was actually a spinal tap moment for me because two days before, going to meet with the Pumpkins, I had gotten fired from the tour I was on with the band called The Tours. I know the band, yep. So I was kind of hoping that word that I'd gotten sacked wouldn't make its way to their camp. And my next gig ended up being Radiohead on Pablo Honey. So it all worked out. Yeah, you know, Alex 
tour managers are the unsung heroes of rock and roll. And you know this, everything is expected to go right on any given day, but it never does. So a tour manager's job is to fix things constantly every single day. Oh, this didn't happen. We need to do this. We need to do that. It's not an easy gig, man. Um, you have to have the patience of a saint, the wherewithal to understand the psychology of all the people you're touring with, how they react to certain things. And they have to be coddled. They have to be pushed. They also have to be told where the fuck to go on any given moment of any day. So it's not an easy gig. I kind of remember you coming into Rumbo, but it, we were so burnt out at that point. We spent five months recording Siamese Dream in Atlanta at Triclops, and then we spent six weeks mixing with Alan Mulder at Rumbo, and we mixed basically seven days a week. So we were super crispy. The end of that record is a blur, but uh, in hindsight, Siamese Dream to me still sounds as vital now as it did then. Well, on Siamese Dream, one track that's probably my favorite didn't work exactly as you intended at the beginning, Disarm, right? So you you had to kind of change your strategy on recording that? Yeah, Disarm was one of those songs that even going back to rehearsals in Chicago, uh, they, the band would play it live and I knew that the bones of the song were really good, but it didn't sound right to me when the band played it. And we went to... Triclops in Atlanta, and I kept pushing that back to the end of the record. Like, basically, we tracked the whole album and we recorded Disarm as the last song. For whatever reason, I, I didn't know what to do with it. And the day we tracked it, and they did a two or three live takes, and it just didn't sound right. And Billy wasn't feeling it either. He came in the control room and said, it needs to sound like this. And he just started playing acoustic guitar. I said, hold on. And so I, I grabbed a microphone and set up and recorded him in the control room. And he just did a quick take on acoustic guitar. And then he had a cheap synth sampler, like a and Sonic Mirage or something. I don't remember what it was. But he said, let's fire this up and just mess around with it. So we played some string samples and some other feedback samples and things. So we sort of fleshed out his acoustic guitar. And then we went back and put bass and uh, some percussion on it. Jimmy overdub bells and timpani. And we decided to do real strings. And what we should have done is figured out an arrangement written it down, had it scored out, and then hired a 16-piece orchestra to come in and play it. Instead, Billy knew a cello player from Chicago who flew down, and he played all the parts. And first, it was going to be a quartet, so it's two low cellos and two high cellos emulating a violin. And after a couple passes, I realized it needed to be much bigger than that. So we overdubbed and overdubbed and overdubbed. I just went crazy. We had to make a slave reel. This is all analog tape. So you have a 24 track tape. And then when you run out of tracks, you take your mix and bump it down to two tracks on the next reel. And then you have uh, ostensibly 22 tracks to record on. So we kept doing that and making slave reels and recording more and more strings. God, I wish I had Pro Tools because it was so hard to mix it. <laughs> you should have invented it well, right there. It, it took a whole day to record the individual string parts and it took me the whole next day to go through and edit it to sound like a proper string section. I think it sounds great. It's an incredible amount of work. But the whole record was like that. It seemed like everything that we did was tedious. 
the guitar tone wasn't quite right. We have to work a little harder on it. The performances could be a little tighter. And that's because Billy and I set a really high bar. So that's why. I'm just wondering, did you ever have good crowds when you were playing in your polka band? Oh, man, playing in polka bands rules. <laughs> I played in a polka band in college called Cliff Benz and the Poketeers, <laughs> and it was damn good money. I got paid 200 bucks cash every gig I did. That is good money. Cliff had these like baggy red shirts with frilly collars and really puffy sleeves, so all of the band would wear these red frilly tops. And I knew some polkas, you know, I'm from Wisconsin, and there was a polka hour every day on the local radio, but I, I wasn't steeped in polka history like Cliff Benz was. <laughs> so every song, I would look at the bass player, Tom, and it would be going, doom, 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 doom. He would look at me and go, doom, 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 doom. We ended every song the same way, doom, 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 doom. That's polka law. It's polka law. You have to end every song that way. But dude, I got paid 200 bucks cash every gig. If Spooner wasn't playing or I wasn't in the studio, I would take the gig and it was fantastic. But you did a miraculous cover, didn't you, in the Ben's band? Yeah, yeah. For the most part, we played polka beats, like two-step, boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop. But Cliff threw in 2001 Disco, <laughs> A Space Odyssey. And that was like, and he played it on the accordion. Da, 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 and the crowds would go nuts. Now, you have to remember, these are like wedding parties and birthday parties and small towns in Wisconsin. So the crowd was, they were up for it, man. <laughs> it was so much fun. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. My very first tour with the Bodines, the last night was at the club Mississippi Nights in St. Louis. I know the club well. And I'd always heard these legendary stories about like Kiss and Rush being on tour together, right? And Kiss having their crew like drop flour from the lighting rig on Rush and Rush rolling marbles out on stage the kiss had to navigate on their platform shoes kind of end of tour hijinks so one of our crew guys he had this brilliant idea of taking gaffer's tape 
and putting it in balls and putting that all over the stage and then taping the guitar chords down to the stage and the drumsticks to the drums and all this kind of stuff. We thought, oh, this is going to be funny. Everybody's going to take this in really good spirits. Well, the band got on stage. Kurt Newman was just stone-faced. Sam Giannis was clearly pissed. It was a complete dud. They didn't, couldn't even start the show, so they were up on stage just waiting. The guys had to go up there and pull all the tape up and all this kind of stuff. And so after the show, we knew we were going to catch hell. And Kurt said, guys, you know what? I don't care what you do. You know, even like take a shit in my bunk, but do not <laughs> fuck with the show. Yeah, you know, <laughs> when you mess with the flow of a show, it can throw artists off because you get used to repetition. You get used to showing up, doing soundcheck, doing this whole thing. If some anomaly pops up and messes with that, it can throw you off for the whole show. When we play a garbage show, something happens in the first song. It can mess with all of our heads. And like if the monitors cut out, we played a show several years ago at the Greek theater and it was a really hot day. The show was sold out. We went out, you know, we're all psyched to play and it's a hometown show in Los Angeles, at least for Shirley and me. And 20 seconds into the first song, the monitors cut out. And it was because the monitor board had been sitting off the side of the stage and the sun had come around and mm. hit it and cooked it. Everything just shut off because it got too hot. Now, we didn't know that. All of a sudden, we're playing and our monitors, there's no sound. And if you've seen Garbage play live lately, there's no amps on stage and I play electronic drums. So it's all in our headphone mixes. And it completely freaked us out. We had to stop halfway through the first song, which is not cool. And you're sitting in front of the audience going, hi, we're sorry about this delay. <laughs> and uh, Shirley was furious. And I think she dropped about 500 F-bombs in the show after that. And so it was a memorable show. I hated the gig. And the next day I saw from all my friends who came to the show, that was the best garbage show ever. And here's why. <laughs> when you play great and play really tight, it's like, okay, whatever, not memorable. When you fuck up and there's all sorts of shit going down, those are the shows that I remember and those are the shows that our fans remember. I remember there was one when Radiohead was playing at the theater at Marquette in Milwaukee and there was some kind of equipment malfunction and the band was kind of on the cusp of having to stand there and Tom York took the initiative, grabbed an acoustic guitar and just kicked into a new song the crowd hadn't heard before and played it really aggressively. The place was just on fire. So it can bring some real magic. Yeah, I swear to God, the shows that we have played that are the most memorable are the ones that are kind of crazy and uh, something happens, you know. And our fans, I think, are the same way. Yeah. If you want to see one of the worst garbage shows ever, go <laughs> online to, I think it was 96, we played a radio festival the festival was at a ski hill about an hour, <laughs> an hour and a half outside of New York City. And Oasis was supposed to headline. And then once they found out it was a ski hill, the band bailed, except Noel Gallagher said he would go play solo, play acoustic solo. When he got there, he was supposed to headline at like 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night. He went, fuck this. And he played two songs at like 4 in the afternoon and then bailed. <laughs> so they're like, garbage, go on now. And there were about 20,000 people in this stage on the ski hill. And it was about zero degrees. And uh, we had to put mittens and hats on. And we went out and we were supposed to play like a 45-minute set. I think we maybe played 20 or 25 minutes. It was horrible. The guitars were so detuned because of the cold. They were like rubber bands. Duke and Steve were hitting them. And the tuning was like just not even close to being normal. 
Man, that was a tough one. Snow Oasis. <laughs> Listeners, I don't know about you, but for me, Butch's stories bring to mind the definition of luck. That's where preparation meets opportunity. And by that measure, Butch is one of the luckiest people I've had the good fortune to meet. Too Much Epping Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Facebook at TMEP Show. Sign up for TMEP emails on our website. That's tmepshow.com. And hey, we may even send you one. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Final Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Final Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com, and I'll see you there. Evergreen Podcast Network.